And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Book of Acts, chapter 2. Last week we began our study in this book. And we're not going to go through every text. We're going to do a kind of a selection as we work our way uh, through the book of Acts. Um, the book in New International Version, I think in most contemporary translations, is called the Acts of the Apostles. And so last week what we sought to clarify was really the book of Acts is the Acts of the, of the Holy Spirit done through the Apostles. Okay, so as you read through Scripture, what you're going to find is that God is working through surrendered people by the power of the Spirit. That's the story of the New Testament. That's the story of the early church. And so what we're going to come to this morning is the story of Pentecost, which is the coming of the Spirit of God upon the church. Okay? Creating a new family, a new household, a new nation that is called the body of Christ. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. The word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That is the 120, including the 12 apostles. Suddenly, a great a sound like a blowing of violent wind came from heaven. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest upon each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, or the King James says, gave them utterance. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language or dialect? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, I'm getting nervous now, Egypt, parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. They're drunk. Then Peter stood with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. And most of you are thinking to yourselves, yeah, please help us out with this text. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. 
I will show wonders in heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this text ends with an amazing promise. But a lot of you are probably thinking, whoa, what's going on in this passage of Scripture? Okay, what is going on? And you'll find as you read through it, that is the exact response of the original people who experienced this. Those who saw it. The question was, what is, this isn't normal. Okay, what is this? As you read through the book of Acts, you will be forced to address a question. And the question is this, and as you would look even through early church history, you'll be forced to address a question. What accounts for the explosive global impact of the early church in approximately two centuries? What accounts for the fact that the early church became one of the greatest forces and influence on the ancient world? How do you account for that? Because the beginnings are weak and small. You start with 120 people in Acts chapter 1. Okay? The ratio, if you take the population of Jerusalem at that time, would be something like this. About one in every 30,000 people were Christians. That's the ratio in Jerusalem. How do you account for the fact that this movement grows out of and changes the world. How do you account for that? How do you explain it? I would argue from Acts chapter 1 that there are two things that help to explain it. We looked at them last Sunday morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and His ascension into His Father's presence. Those are two truths that help us to begin to understand the power of what was happening in the early church. There they're in a sense given to us in Acts chapter 1 and argued from Acts chapter, from Acts chapter 1 as many convincing proofs. These are things that God did to evidence that Jesus Christ was in fact His Son and was in fact beginning something new called the church, the body of Christ. So the Spirit of God comes in chapter 1 and says, He's going to come with power and you will be my witnesses. But I think there's a third reason in the book of Acts that's given for the explosive growth of the early church. And I think if you ask me what explains the sustained growth of the church, I'm going to say the resurrection, I think, plays an important part. The ascension of Jesus plays an important part. But it's why Jesus ascended to heaven that plays the most important part. And that is found in this story about the day of Pentecost. Okay? And I think it gives us the explanation for why the church became such a powerful force in the ancient world and why it should today be a powerful force also. So verse 1 of chapter 2, and we find it in in, in chapter 1, the disciples are told this. They're told, the Spirit of God is coming. Wait in Jerusalem until He comes. Okay, that's the direction that's given to the disciples. So, they're there waiting. Now, here's what we'll know historically. They end up waiting 10 days, and at the end of that 10 days, you've come to a period of time that marks from Passover to Pentecost, 50 days. Seven weeks plus one day. Okay, it's a 50-day period that marks the celebration of a feast called Pentecost. 
Okay, now to understand the impact of this day, you have to think back onto the history. What was Pentecost in the Old Testament? What was, what was this day about? Okay, and it had two significances in the Old Testament. One is agricultural. Okay, after uh, Israel was, had begun uh, the time of harvest, they would take the first fruits of their harvest and present them to God as an offering. It was called the offering of the first fruits. Okay, the idea of first fruit offerings in the Bible is this. That first fruit offering is the promise, is the statement that more or the best is still to come. Okay, so they would take the first fruit, the first part of the harvest, present it to God, and it would be their statement saying, God, thank you for what you have done, and we are trusting you to bring in the fullness of this harvest. You are going to meet our needs. It was a mandatory pilgrim festival, so the city of Jerusalem would be packed with people, which accounts for some of what you see happening in Acts chapter 2. This large crowd is gathered. The second significance of Pentecost is historical, and it's the part that a lot of times we miss. We, we, we tend to think of, of Pentecost in the way of this, this harvest festival, but Pentecost was an event that occurred 50 days after the exodus of Israel from Egypt. They are brought out of bondage by the power of God. And where does God take them? He takes them to a, a mountain, right? And the mountain is called Mount Sinai. So 50 days after the Passover, the deliverance, what happens? They come into a place that is called Sinai. What happens on Sinai is what I think is most significant in relationship to this text. Certainly, there's going to be a harvest like Pentecost, okay, in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. But there's also going to be something amazing that happens that will cause every Jewish believer to think back to an historic event on the day of Pentecost. And what they're going to think back to is the time when God came down on Mount Sinai and revealed himself to Moses in three very specific ways. God reveals himself through a storm. God reveals himself through fire. God reveals himself to Israel through speech. Right? Those are the three ways that in the Old Testament, God manifests himself to Israel. What happened at Pentecost? God, in Exodus 19 came to the people of Israel and shaped them into a new covenant family, the people of God. Okay, that's what happened at Pentecost. God came, he revealed himself in glory and power to Moses on the mountain, and then he spoke to Israel the laws that would be the covenant relationship between them and their God. That's what Pentecost is all about, the forming of the people of God in the Old Testament. Now, the word Pentecost literally means 50th. Okay, so the Passover in the New Testament was what? It was the time when Jesus Christ was crucified. Fifty days later, what happens? Something that is amazingly like what happened in the Old Testament. There's a storm. There's fire. There's speech. Okay, there's communication from God, uttering the very words of God. So in this text, and let's just... Look through verses 1 to 6 real quickly just to kind of lay out what happens. Okay, verse 1 tells us the day of Pentecost came with agricultural and historical significance. This 
holiday meant something to Israel. It was a day when they celebrated their birth as a nation and the coming of God to bless them and be with them. But when God came and blessed Israel in the Old Testament, what was their response? What was their response as they looked at this this mountain, okay, smoking and burning and shaking? Was their response, oh, let's run over to the mountain and see what's going on. What was their response? Their response was, Moses, you go talk to God. But there was a, a sense of fear and foreboding and distance. As God revealed himself, what was there? There was for Israel a sense of unworthiness. A sense of sinfulness, a sense of we can't go. So Moses, you go and you talk to God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, go and read it. It's fascinating. That's Pentecost. God coming, but because of the sinfulness of the nation and the lack of a Redeemer, there is a sense in which they're nervous about approaching the holiness of God. As I read through this text, verse 2, I think is amazing. It says, suddenly... On the day of Pentecost, where they were gathered, and what are they doing? They're waiting for the promise of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You may just want to quickly turn back there, Acts 1 verse 8. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And Jesus says to them, okay, you wait here. And God, by the Spirit, is going to come. And when He comes, He's going to send you forth to be difference makers in your world. That's the promise of Acts chapter 1 that we now begin to see being fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. So, what are the three unusual signs that mark the coming of the Spirit of God and the birth of the church? Okay, what are the three signs? The three signs are these. Okay, verse 2. There was a sound like the blowing of violent wind from heaven that filled the whole house where they were sitting. So first we find that there is this sound, and it's like the mighty wind. Okay, verse 3. They, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one. So there was, in this, some type of visible manifestation of the coming of God. Why would God do that? For the same reason that he did it in the Old Testament. He was evidencing to his early apostles, to the early church, that he was going to come and take up residence on them. So this, this idea of fire comes and it starts breaking apart. And the idea of tongues, the question becomes, okay, what, does it look like a tongue of fire? What is it? Okay, and we talk about flames as licking flames. Okay, that's the, the kind of idea or the picture. What was it? It was God visibly manifesting to his people that he had come. That this was the ultimate Pentecost. And that he had come to them not on a mountain at a distance. This is the greater Pentecost. He had come to each of them individually and personally. Which to me is amazing. And I, I, I read this text and I wonder, what was this like for those that experienced it? And what was it like for those that observed it? The, the multitude that's gathered together as they, they hear this sound like mighty wind. They see these signs, amazing and astonishing. But the last thing that they hear is, and the last unusual sign, is speech. Folks, on this day, a miracle takes place. Verse 4. It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other 
I'm going to give you the, the, the strict translation here is other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there, verse 5, there are representatives from every nation in the world. And every one of those representatives from all the nations of the world hears what? They hear the works of God in their own tongue, their own language. Okay? So God comes, evidences power and presence, and there is communication. That's what God is always doing. The purpose of this event in Acts is not to say, wow, that's amazing. I'd like to see It's not the purpose of it. And a lot of times people will read a text like this and say, okay, we want to see something fascinating like that. That's not the purpose of this text. The purpose of this text is to demonstrate to the early church and to remind us God has come. And in the church, what is he doing? He's taking up resonance in individual believers and is an agent of change in the world. It's agricultural and its historical significance is, I think, brought to bear through these signs that are exactly like what happens at Pentecost. God comes and a great harvest is going to flow out of this amazing story. Verse 12, just skipping down, their response to this, of this large group of people from, I think I've, I've counted this up, like 16 different nations are represented. And this large group of people from 16 different nations has a question. Okay, verse 12 amazed and perplexed they are they're they're blown away by what's happening and they said and asked one another what does this mean okay if you saw something like this we'd be honest you'd say okay what was that but their question is fascinating they're not saying okay what is this they're saying what is the significant what does this mean it looks familiar anyone that was literate in Jewish literature, understood the Old Testament, would automatically think about Pentecost? These signs were the same thing that happened there? What what does this mean? And that's the question that I would like us to seek to answer in this text. Peter begins to respond, verse 13. It says, however, some made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. And what do they say? We don't understand. We're blown. We don't understand. We don't have a category for the miraculous, so we're just going to say they're drunk because that's the only possible explanation. The problem with that response is what? Drunk people don't speak in articulate ways in different languages. In fact, they don't speak in, in what this case is, unlearned languages. That's the miracle that's happening. Okay, so there's, oh, they're just drunk. And, and, and look, you, you may be in that place. You, you may... You may come this morning saying, you know what, I'm curious about Christianity, but some of this stuff just doesn't make sense to me. I need rational categories, things that can be explained. Folks, I want to tell you something this morning. God is not explainable in the full sense that we would like to explain him or try to explain it away. No, this is the... Notice Peter's response. Peter is just amazing. Verse 14, Peter stood up with the 11 and addressed and raised his voice and addressed the crowd fellow Jews, and all who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. And they're like, please, listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk. So the first thing he does, he gives a denial that just because it's something that is amazing and fascinating and astonishing and perplexing doesn't mean that it's a result of them coming under the influence of alcohol, a substance. Okay, that's their automatic assumption. 
It's only nine in the morning. That's his argument. It's too early for people to be out partying. And then he says, this is just an amazing statement. He appeals to the Old Testament. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Okay, now that's an amazing statement. He's reaching back 500 years to an Old Testament prophet and saying, this God talked about through his man, Joel. That's what this is. And then he explains it, verse 16. Or 17. In the last days. And I'll just, I'll, I'll just give you this understanding of in the last days. And then if you go down to verse 20. The last phrase of the verse. The coming of the glorious day of the Lord. Okay. Now the day of the Lord means two things in scripture. It means a day of judgment. It means a day of blessing. Okay. Judgment of God precedes blessing of God. Okay. That's the, the picture of this day. Verse 17, in the last days, God says, by Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And the result will be people speaking the wonders of God. In other languages, in words of prophecy. Okay, God is going to begin to communicate the message of what he has done through Jesus. Not simply astonishing things to amaze us. No, God's going to communicate his saving work. That he's come to form a new people called the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the things I want to note for you is this. He says, I will pour out my spirit. So what is he saying? He's not saying that the spirit of God is going to shower down in little gentle ways on the church. He's not saying that he's going to be like a nice, gentle, soaking rain. No, what is he saying? He says, I'm going to pour this forth. It will be like a tropical storm when the Spirit of God comes. Okay, he's going to come in a way that is unmistakable. And if you've ever been out in a storm, there are certain kinds of rain that get your attention. Okay, there's that misty, showery stuff. Last night about 5.30, I decided to go out and get my jog in, and it was rain. But it wasn't like... I shouldn't be out in this. I mean, my neighbor stopped me in front of his house and said, bad timing. I said, yeah, true, true. He was, thought it odd that I was out there. But I'm going to tell you what, if it was a downpour and I was out there, he would have thought, that's really weird. Okay, what is God saying in this text? I'm going to pour out my spirit in a way that is powerful and unmistakable. That is to say what? When he comes, you will not be able to miss that he is present. There will be something glorious, just like there was at Pentecost. These signs that are listed in verses 1 to 4 of this text are to evidence that Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the promise Christ gave, has now been fulfilled. And the disciples become transformed witnesses to the power and glory of God. So here's the question I would like to address for you this morning, okay? What is the significance of Pentecost for us? Okay, what, why was it important, so important that Jesus said to the disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the blessing of the Spirit of God in your life? Why would Jesus say that? Why would he say, don't go anywhere? He forbids them to go with the good news. Okay, that's what he does. He says, you wait there until you are clothed, Acts 1-8, with power from on high. Meaning, the task that I've called you to do, you can't do on your own. 
You need the blessing of my power and of my presence. So this morning, let's seek to answer this very simple question. What difference does the Spirit of God make in our lives? How do we know that He is alive, active, functioning in our hearts and in our experience? How do we know that? And I just want to work through a couple thoughts real quickly. The first thing the Spirit of God does when He comes into someone's heart is He assures of God's powerful presence. Okay, He assures that you belong to Him, that He is present with you. And so in this text, what do you find? You find this pointing back to the Feast of Pentecost, to the day of Pentecost, the day when God came and dwelt amongst Israel. The pictures of fire and storm, the powerful presence of God, they're, they're the pictures that tell us that God is there. So any Jew watching what happened on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts would look and say, this is similar to what happens in the Old Testament. I'll pick up on one of the symbols from this account the symbol of fire, because that becomes the visible manifestation of God's presence. Okay, you can find this throughout the Old Testament, that when fire is present as a symbol, as a picture, it is always picturing the presence of the holiness and judgment of God, that He is there. So you can go back to Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham is offering his sacrifices, he sees a smoking furnace and a blazing torch. What is it? It's a picture that God has come to meet with Abraham. Abraham understands it and is awestruck by it. On the mountain, uh, Moses saw this, this powerful presence. God came down on that mountain in fire. He followed the nation of Israel through the wilderness in a pillar of fire. It was a symbol of God's personal presence. So what is Pentecost saying to the early disciples? God has come in the midst. He's not up on the mountain. He's not over in the tabernacle. Where is He? He's with you. He's with you. And what do we find? We find a picture of God's power and a picture of God's purity. You also find this picture of God's presence in fire in the burning bush, don't you? He comes to meet with Moses. Right? And Moses sees this burning on the mountain. A bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. What's the picture? God is there. And he's inviting Moses into his presence. When Moses gets it, what does he say? He says, I'm awestruck by God's presence. God says, take off your shoes. The place where you're standing is holy ground. What was Moses doing that day? He was meeting with God. Now what's very beautiful in this text in verse 3 is this. It says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and then did what? Came to rest. Upon what? Each one. Every believer in that room on the day of Pentecost experienced the fulfillment of the promise of Joel. That is that God is going to pour out His Spirit. On who? On men and women. That's what He says later, right? On young and old. On foreigners and locals. He, it ended with, without any discrimination. The Spirit of God is coming and He's drawing together something new. It's not Jewish. It's not nationalistic. It's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He's using women. He's using men. He's using young people. He's using old people. That's what this is about. That the Spirit of God has come in our day, following Pentecost until the time that Christ returns, to fill us, to make us powerful witnesses for Him. In Acts 2.38... 
Peter, I think, drives this point home. It says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. See, they came watching it. What does Peter say? If you acknowledge your sin in light of the holy manifestation of God, what will happen? You'll receive the gift of the Spirit. He will come and take up residence with you. And here's the thought that starts to flow to my mind. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul says to the early church, live a holy life. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have from God. Joel 2, I will pour out my Spirit upon every person who comes to believe. And as the Spirit comes, what does He do? He assures of God's presence. And when He does that, what happens? Every believer, think of this, every believer in that room, the weak ones and the strong ones, the male ones and the female ones, what happens? They all receive a manifestation, a blessing and the presence of God poured out among them. Folks, that is significant for the church. God comes to change you by assuring you first of His presence. You see, that's what He wants to do. He comes to to give us a manifestation, an evidence of His presence that comes on everyone so that every believer becomes the light of the world. Matthew 5.16 Jesus was anticipating this. He said, don't you know you are the light of the world? You would never guess that looking at the early disciples, would you? At the time of the crucifixion, denying, betraying, running. That's the early disciples. Jesus said, hey, you guys are the light. What are they doing? They're like going undercover, hiding the light. Why? Because they didn't have the powerful presence of God in their lives yet. So the Spirit of God comes to assure us of God's presence in a greater way than he comes at the first Pentecost. At the first Pentecost, he's on the mountain at a distance. One individual goes and sees him. In the church, what happens? The Spirit of God comes and He distributes Himself upon each one and everyone sees Him. So the first thing that happens is the Spirit of God comes and assures of God's presence. In Romans 5, 5, Paul says this. He says, God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What is He doing? He's assuring God is with you and God loves you. If you know Jesus Christ... That's your experience. If you don't know Christ, here's what I would would beg of you this morning. Go to God and say, God, I don't know Christ yet. I don't have the assurance of His presence and the affirmation of His love in my heart, but I would like that. You know what Peter says? Call upon Him. Call upon Him. Ask Him to come into your life and into your heart and to make a difference. And you will experience this in the same type of thing in a very glorious way. So, He assures of God's presence, and when He assures of God's presence, what happens? Okay, let me ask you this question. Is the Holy Spirit an inert ingredient, or is He an active ingredient? When He comes, what happens? Things change. That's the glory of the work of Christ. If anyone's in Christ by the Spirit, he becomes a new creation. Old things are passing away. What's happening? Everything is becoming new. When the Spirit of God comes, what does he do? He changes people. And as you read through this text, you cannot help but understand that there is a dramatic picture of change in this story, in the proclamation of the early disciples. 
evidence of that, I think, is if you go back to John chapter 20 and verse 19. After Jesus Christ is crucified, prior to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his ascension and the coming of the Spirit, where are the disciples? John chapter 20 and verse 19 says this. I'll just read this for you real quick because it's just back a page or two. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors being locked for fear of the Jews. Okay? Brilliant lights, huh? Where are they? They're, for fear of the Jews, they're hibernating. Okay, they're, they're hiding. Why? They, they have fear for their own lives. They don't have that uncharacteristic boldness yet. They don't have that courage that transforms yet. It's not there yet. But it's coming. Look at Peter as a case study in verse 14. We know the story of Peter, right? Peter was the guy that when push came to shove and he had an opportunity to declare that he knew Christ and loved Christ, what does Peter do? Peter puts a basket over the light, right? He hides himself and he denies Christ. What happens in this text? After the Spirit of God comes upon him, verse 14, they're saying, hey, what does this mean? Peter's like, I'll tell you. Just think of this change. Fifty days before this, what would have Peter said? I have no clue. Ask someone else. <laughs> What's he do here? He, he's like, I'll tell you exactly what this is. And, and in, in the midst of this crowd of hecklers that are saying, oh, they're drunk, they're causing, they're troublemakers. That's what the early church was. These followers of Jesus, they're a problem. They knew that, so they hid. But Peter, filled with the Spirit, what happens? Verse 14, he stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice, and he addressed the crowd, and he said to them, listen carefully, end of verse, uh, verse 14, listen carefully to what I say. Which is to say what? You better listen to me. Okay, there's not, there's not a shyness, there's not a, a reticence on Peter's part. It's something, a switch is flipped. And the guy that denied is now the guy that stands in a large crowd, as you'll see by the end of the chapter. He stands and proclaims the truth of what is happening in this setting. Another evidence of transformation is verse 7 of chapter 2. When they heard this, verse 6 says, this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language, utterly amazed. And this, there's two words that are used here. The idea is this perplexing perplexity, astonishing amazement. What happens? They ask, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Now, if you're not familiar with the geography of Israel, you'll know... you. You need to know this to understand, aren't these all Galileans? What would that mean? The idea was something like this. Aren't these guys hillbillies? Aren't they from the area where the rednecks live? I mean, is, isn't that who this is? They, 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 they're quite, how can they speak in our language? They come from an area where you don't learn other languages. And what are they saying? How do you explain this? How do people that didn't learn a language speak it? Well, Peter says, I have an answer to that. And with an uncharacteristic, now spirit-driven boldness, he stands, and what does he proclaim? He proclaims what God is doing. And to me, it is just, it is just, a, just an amazing picture. A small group of 120 from a marginal class become the most powerful force on the planet in 200 years. How do you explain it? They're Galileans. How do you... 
And folks, do you, do you see the promise in this? God did not call mighty people to do His work. Why? He didn't need them. He was going to pour out His Spirit. He could take common, average people and transform them into powerful, bold, clear, courageous witnesses. In this case, the way He does it is, He gives them a capacity to speak in languages that they never learned, so the people of, I think, 60 to 18 dialects hear the Word of God in their own tongue. That's an amazing truth to me. What happened? God came, and when God comes, He always comes with an effect. The Spirit of God in your life was never meant to be an inert ingredient. He is always an active agent in your life. And when He is present, He is always going to bring about change. And what we have here in Acts chapter 1 is what? It's the beginning of the first fruits. This is, Pentecost is a day of harvest. This is the beginning of change. It's the promise of more change. You ever wrestle with this in your life? You see the Spirit of God working in your life. You're experiencing some degree of change. But what are you really longing for? You know what you're longing for? You're longing to be completely free from temptation and sin. You're wondering, will I ever really completely change? Pentecost comes to say that what God begins on this day, He has the ability and authority to complete for His glory. Paul says, now we see through a glass dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we wrestle, then we will be free. And the hope of this first fruits of the Spirit coming, His working gives us hope that what? The ultimate work of God. He's also going to finish that in a very glorious and powerful way. The weak become strong under the power of the Spirit. The timid become bold. And I think the third thing that happens when the Spirit of God comes in your life, He gives you assurance of His presence, He changes you, but then He also gives you the desire to communicate the works of God. And that's what becomes to me amazing in this passage of Scripture. He gives a desire. He, he gives power. He enables bold proclamation to tell the works of God. Peter can say, this is that. This is what Joel talked about, what you're seeing, this proclamation, that's God. He has come upon His people. And when God comes, what happens? There is speech, just like at Mount Sinai. God comes with, with a storm. He comes with fire. And then He does what? He begins to proclaim to Moses what? Go back to Exodus chapter 33. He says, the Lord, the Lord, full of grace and truth. He communicates the goodness and love of God to Moses. And God comes on us so that we will declare the mighty works of God. Verse 11 of this text says this. It says, these people that are hearing the words that are being spoken say, we hear them, this group of 120, declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Okay? What were they declaring? They were declaring what God has done. Okay? The the power of God, the glory of God, in what way? Well, reflecting back clearly to the works of Jesus Christ. If you go to the second half of the chapter, you'll find that all of the discussion is about Jesus. What is the mighty work of God that the Spirit of God fills us and changes us and empowers us to proclaim and gives us a desire to proclaim. You know what it is? It's the work of Christ. That He has died. 
that he has become the sacrifice, that he has borne the wrath of God, that the baptism of fire that came on the mountain of judgment and holiness has now come upon Jesus Christ. He made him to become sin for us, who knew no sin. What happens? We can become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, that's what you're going to want to share with. When the Spirit of God comes, you will have in your heart a desire to communicate Jesus to others. Okay? It's, it's one of the ways that you can know that God has come. Now, can we wrestle with the fact real quick? Many of you sitting here, including myself, standing here, we have the desire to share the truth of Christ. Where's that coming from? Well, the Spirit of God is, is convincing of us, that, us of that truth as we worship and honor and glorify Him. He's communicating that truth to us in various ways, showing His glory, showing His work. But sometimes we walk in the power of our flesh. And what happens? We fail to declare the mighty works of God, the mighty deeds of God. What are the mighty deeds of God? The mightiest are Jesus Christ, His death in your place, bearing the wrath of God. He shed blood as the forgiveness of your sin. His resurrection from the dead to validate everything that He is. These are the works of God that I believe they're declaring to them in this context. When the Spirit of God comes, He will give a desire to share the mighty works of God. We all have a tendency to do this with certain things in our lives. Okay, there are certain things that, that when we get with our friends, we're going to share. When you get to work tomorrow, there are certain things that may have happened over the weekend that you're going to share. It may be that you went to a good restaurant. It may be that you found a great doctor. Okay, it could be various things, but there are certain things that happen, good things that happen in our lives. And what happens? We have this natural desire to share them. But the Spirit of God comes to do what? He comes to change us, to give us hope and a future transforming power. Why? So that we would share it. But we know that when you share Jesus, people kind of get the feeling that you're doing what? You're, you're trying to convert me. You're trying to change. You think you're better than me. Right? And, and what happens? We need to function out of a deep humility and deep gratitude. God has changed me. But, but he has come upon us in the power and presence of the Spirit to do what? To cause us. Acts 1.8. To give us power, capacity, courage. And I think when he's there, he gives desire to share the truth of Christ. So you may say this morning, Pastor Tim, I have the desire, but I chicken out. I get in situations where I could share the good news of Christ, and I, I get weak in my knees. I get afraid. Okay, can I tell you something? I'm your pastor. It happens to me. Okay? It's only when we rest in the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, who has come upon every believer this time. It breaks and it settles on each one. Why? So that each one can become a communicator of the goodness of Christ. That's what this is about. He comes upon them and they begin to speak in unlearned languages, a miracle, the good deeds of God. And folks, if God has worked in your life, then what you need to do is this. You need to say, Lord, come upon me in such a way that I am filled with a gratitude for what Christ has done so that I begin to share just like I would share any other good news in my life. See, sharing the gospel is intimidating because it involves what? A confrontation. It involves a confrontation of worldviews. It involves a confrontation with people's religious beliefs and systems. They think they're good enough. They think they're getting to heaven because of what they've done. The, the Spirit of God comes to say, no, that's not true. The Spirit of God comes to say, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, died in your place. 
paid the price for your sin. On the third day, God raised Him from the dead. And if you will call upon Him, He'll change you. Verse 21, at the end of the discussion that that Peter gives about Joel, here's what he says. All these things are going to happen. Some I think are in the past. Some I think are in the future. But all of these things happen for a purpose. And here's what it is. So that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Folks, that's why God came at Pentecost to each person so that every believer would realize, I have the presence of God that changes me and enables me to proclaim the good news to the nations. What is God doing? God is creating a new people. The result of the Spirit's work in this text is amazing. And you just have to jump to the end. Verse 37. When the people heard this, and I'll deal with this part on Easter Sunday, the rest of this text. When the people heard this, what Jesus had done for them, that they had killed the Lord of glory, what do they say? Under the preaching of the power of the Spirit of God on Peter's life, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And what do you find? You find these weak Men that lack courage, now declaring the powerful works of God. And what is God doing? God is drawing together people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to create what we will know as the body of Christ, an international community in which there is an abundance of love that is flowing out from the Spirit that allows us to what? Tear down the barriers that separate us. That causes us to share the hope of Jesus Christ with the nations, with all different kinds of people without prejudices. Folks, the evidence of the Spirit of God coming in your life is that He assures you, He changes you, He gives you a capacity to speak, but you will do it in a love that is unmeasured. They say, Peter, what must we do? Which means what? They were cut to the heart. It means Peter was willing to wound them with the truth of the Gospel before they could be healed by the power of the Gospel. Folks, that's what has to happen for people. They need to be confronted with their sin, but not out of a self-righteousness, not out of arrogance, but out of a true sense of love for them. See, a love for people will not allow you to be silent. I mean, I experience this driving down the road. If I see someone with a a, a tire that's running low and it looks like it it could endanger their life, what do I say to them? I I had this happen a couple weeks ago. I pulled up beside a van, two guys, construction guys, and they were driving down the road. Their front tire was really, really low. I could have kept my window up. But something in our human spirit says what? Roll down your window and tell them their tire's flat. Or what if they're embarrassed? What if they get mad? What if they think I'm actually trying to say something critical of them? Right? They say, but that would be stupid. They have a need. Help them. But with the gospel, that's all we're doing. We realize that there's a true need in the heart of every person. An offense against the holy God who desires to come. And we point them to their own sinfulness. We point them then to their need of Jesus Christ as a Savior. That's good news. That we can't keep to ourselves. And so we share it in the power of the Spirit of God. And on this day, it's just amazing to me. You come to the end of of this chapter, verse 40. It says, with many other words, He warned them and He pleaded with them. But that's what love does. That's what love does. Love does not allow a teenager in the house to run off and do whatever they want to do 
unconfronted. You know what love loves? Love jumps in front. Love does not care if they get angry. Love warns them of the danger. It's exactly what Peter's doing here. You know the risk you run when you speak the true gospel of Christ? Here's the risk you run. Some people will not like you anymore. Okay? It's why we're... If you knew that every person you were going to share the gospel with was going to say to you at the end of your discussion, you know what? I want to trust Jesus today. Guess what? We would never hesitate. The love of Christ is what should compel us to share the truth of Christ. Why? Because people need to know it. And that's what the Spirit of God comes to do, enable this bold proclamation. In this text it says, that day about 3,000 were added to the church. And that to me is amazing. Why? Because God came to change, to possess to inspire bold proclamation in love of the mighty deeds of God. May God help us to desire Pentecost. Okay, here's, you get to the end of a text like this and you say, okay, this is a text that talks about the work of the Spirit. What's the problem with discussing the work of the Spirit? The problem is that everybody's afraid of extremes. Right? And because everybody's afraid of extremes, totally ignoring or going crazy in the spirit, what happens? He becomes the the weird uncle in the church that nobody wants to talk about. I would argue from the book of Acts that the Spirit of God comes in Acts chapter 2 to fill the church. And I believe there is this initial entry of the Spirit of God into the life of the believers. But as you read through the book of Acts, what do you find? You find that there are continual manifestations and fillings of the Spirit that are sought by the early church. And sometimes we're experiencing a weakness because we're afraid of the extremes. We're afraid of, of things that we may not be able to explain. Okay, folks, God is not neat and tidy and explainable. Okay, so I think what happens is we end up being people that debate about the work of the Spirit rather than crave the fullness of the Spirit that changes the church. Result, the church becomes weak and anemic. We lack the power that God intended for us to experience on Pentecost. He comes on us to change, to transform. So the Spirit of God is not the weird thing that we don't talk about. He is the power by which we proclaim the good news of Christ. If you don't know the Lord this morning, maybe, maybe as you listen, you say, you know what, Pastor Tim, there is a sense in which I have been coming in, in, increasingly aware of my own sinfulness, but I don't know where to go with it. I, I understand what these people say. Brothers, what must we do? I, I, that's my heart. That's, my, that's where I am. Here's what I would say to you. Verse 21, call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever does that, whoever cries out to him out of their sinfulness, acknowledging the work of Jesus on the cross, will be saved. And then here's what Peter says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to assure of God's presence, to change, and to give you the capacity to explain to people the good things that God has done for you. Father, as we end our discussion this morning on the coming of the Spirit and the effect of His presence,